Okay, well today, uh, we're going to take a little break from the book of Psalms, and instead, we're going to be in Ephesians. So would you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 11 through 22 this morning. A message I've entitled, No More Division. Uh, the Lord led me to this message, and uh, so it's kind of, I thought it was kind of funny. I felt clearly the Lord wanted me to do this one, and then I thought, oh, no more division, two services, one service. Uh, so I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and go through this today um, and see what the Lord might say to us. Let's pray. Father, do thank you for this morning, for this opportunity. Thank you for uh, the people that you brought here today. Lord, we thank you for uh, those who are visiting from out of town and ask that you would be with them um, whenever it comes time for them to travel back, that your hand would be upon them. And Lord, thank you for um, just the opportunity for me to hear uh, people worshiping together, Lord, and the blessing that that is and uh, the foretaste of heaven uh, and worshiping you. And, and so I just pray as we move through your word again today that you would lead and guide us. I pray for our safe travel and a good uh, youth camp. Lord, pray for men's discipleship, for the women's study, for all the opportunities that you give us to have fellowship together. I pray that we would uh, make use of them, that we seek first your kingdom and all these things will be added to us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Again, I've entitled this message, No More Division. And, and I want to remind you that some division is a result of sin. Now, I'm not talking about the long division that you did in school. <laughs> it might have been sin to you, but it's not. And I'm not talking about the division of light and darkness when God made day and night, but I am talking about the division of relationships. And that's the most common and the, the sinful division that we experience. And it really happens in two different directions. First of all, there's that vertical division. Because of sin, we have a vertical division. There's a division between us and God. Now, so because of sin, we have been separated from God. And then also because of sin, there is a division on the horizontal plane. There is a division between us and other human beings. Now, this is how it's been all throughout history. It began with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, we see both of those. When Adam and Eve sinned, first of all, they had division from God. They began to hide from God, but they also had division from each other as they began to blame one another and treat each other poorly. When Cain killed Abel, we see that there was a division there. When Noah and his family were separated from all the rest of the people on planet Earth, there was a division. When God called Abraham out from his people, there was a division. This is how it is. There are divisions because of sin. That's what takes place. And so here in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22, what Paul is going to do is he's going to show us how the Lord Jesus came to heal the vertical division, to heal that rift between us and God, and then he also came to heal the horizontal division between us and fellow believers. So this is how it is. I have found this to be correct 100% of the time, 100% of the time, I am in a situation where I'm not right with God, therefore I'm not right with other people. That's just how it is. I end up not being right with God, and therefore I take it out on other people. So what has to happen is we get right with God, and then what's happening is that we'll begin to get right with other people. So as we as believers seek to get right with God, now we'll get right with one another, and we'll find our divisions decreasing and decreasing. So let's look here at Ephesians chapter 2, again, verses 11 through 22. Let me read it, and we'll get into it. Paul writes, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made uh, in the flesh by hands, and that at that time you were without Christ, 
being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus are you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to you who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Now, as we move into our first section, we're going to really look at three sections today. We're going to see, first of all, the blood of Christ, then Christ, our peace, and finally one building. So let's just move into our first section. That's the blood of Christ. And we find this in verses 11 through 13. Now, I want you to, for just a moment... For some of you to, to think long ago, back in your school days, some of you are still in your school days, but think back to when you did those long division problems. Now, when you think about the first time you began to, now some of you in here, okay, don't raise your hand, but you might've been like, I loved that day. <laughs> I just love seeing all those numbers and solving that. You know, maybe you loved it. For many of us, we didn't. Okay, but what you understood is there are steps to take. If you wanted to learn how to do long division, if you wanted to solve the problem correctly, you had to do things in a certain order. You had to have a certain order. And if you choose to not do it in that order, things didn't work out right. Even so, man has a long division problem with God. He has been divided from God for a long time. Come on, that's a dad joke. Come on, guys. Come on. He's long division, divided from God for a long time. Wow. The spirit of second service reigns in here. We will not laugh. All right. So Paul is going to point out here into the Ephesians that it's the blood of Christ that solves a division problem. Okay, so in all seriousness, mankind has a division problem with God, whether they admit it or not. It doesn't matter if they admit it or not. That's the reality. And so mankind has this division problem with God. They're divided from him. And so what happens to happen is God has to be the one to solve the problem. Please understand that. You cannot solve this long division. You can't fix this. You can't make this right. Only God can. As Robert Lowry wrote these words, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Please understand that when Jesus died on the cross, you weren't there. You, you, you didn't participate in it. You had nothing to, to add to it. But the moment you placed your faith in Christ, then what Jesus did at the cross was applied to you. So that's very important for us. Maybe some of you, you don't want to admit, you never really learned long division. You just had somebody do it for you. 
Well, you were ahead of the curve because this is exactly what the Lord does for us. The Lord solves this long division problem for us. So Paul's going to set the stage. Verse 11, he says, therefore, therefore. And so again, whenever we see a therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what's a therefore? Because it's a connecting word. So what we want to do is we want to back up to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, because Paul's going to lay out some bad news, good news for us. And just in case you ever wonder when someone asks you, hey, do you want the bad news or the good news first? You always want the bad news first. Okay, that's the way to do it. You want the bad news first. That way the good news can help, you know, dampen the bad. And that's what Paul's going to do here. So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, he says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. That's bad news. Verses one through three is bad news. That that's how every single person, apart from believing Christ, behaves. That's, that's their life. Now, they may dress it up on the outside. They, they may look good on the outside, but in reality, this is what's going on the inside. But then those two wonderful words, verse four, but God. Everything changes when God steps in. This is how bad things are, but God, who is rich in mercy. He, he's not poor in mercy. He's not, you know, thrifty in mercy. He's not going to the Dave Ramsey school of mercy. He's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I want you to kind of go back on your own and really take some time through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But what I want you to see here in verses 4 and 5 is that when you were dead in your trespasses, when you were just lost in your sin, when your darkest, deepest moment, God still loved you. So if he loved you when you were at your worst, don't think he's going to stop loving you now that you're in Christ. So you need to remind yourself of that truth. Verse six, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now you may have had a hard time finding a seat today. It was a little challenging at times, and we're grabbing seats from other places. But when you get to heaven, please understand, verse 6 tells you it's a done deal. Your seat's reserved. You're not going to get to the gates of heaven, and then they're going to be scrambling of like, I didn't expect to see you here. (laughs) No, your seat is prepared. It's ready. And then what's God going to do? Verse 7, in that in the ages to come, so in eternity future, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God's going to get a kick for all eternity future of just kind of showing off the riches of his grace to us. See what I made for you. See what I'm going to do with you. See where I'm going to take you. And he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so in light of all of this, we were sinners, God loved us, we're going to be seated in heavenly places, we have this work to do there in verse 10, the special works that God has for us to, to live out in our Christian life, then we move back into verse 11, therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh. It's really important for us as believers, to remember what our life was like before we were believers. 
Because sometimes the Christian life can be very discouraging. It's very challenging. There's all kinds of hardships associated with it. Jesus promised this. And so it's good to remind ourselves who we were before and where God has brought us from. And so this was the primary identification of the Ephesians. They were, they were Gentiles, okay? They were Gentiles in the flesh. And, and so kind of for us to think about it, it's like, you know, it was about their nationality or it was about their race. That's how they were considered. That's how they were identified. And unfortunately, that's what people have gone back to today. It seems to be that everything is, oh, what's your, what do you identify as? Okay, what color is your skin? What's your nationality? What language do you speak? Let's segment people according to those things. And so this divisiveness is only increasing. But the application here is that if you're seeking to become more specialized in your self-identification, may I just say in all humility, you're traveling in the wrong direction. Anyone on planet Earth who says, you know what, I just want to become more specialized in my identity. I just want to separate myself from others more and more by all these identifiers. That's the wrong direction. The only identifier really for us as believers is that we're Christians. You know, it's not even about Calvary Chapel or Baptist, right? It's none of that stuff. It's I am in Christ. I'm identified with him. And so he says, these Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. So Gentiles, they didn't circumcise their boys. And, and so that was a derogatory term that was used by Jewish people in reference to the Gentiles. And you remember this, David, when he was going to go up against Goliath, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that's speaking against my God? It was a term of derision. And so it revealed this division between the, the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentiles were outside of the covenant that was given to Israel because the Israelites circumcised their young, their young men um, for an identifier. And it continues on. And he says, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Now, what is Paul doing here? He's pointing out that circumcision was external in nature. Okay, it, it, it was an outward thing. It was an outward sign but it didn't cause salvation. It didn't ensure salvation. In fact, Jeremiah 4.4, this is the Lord speaking. We read these words. The Lord says to his people, circumcise yourself to the Lord. Take away the foreskin of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. In other words, the Lord is saying, to the people of Israel through Jeremiah or the people of Judah saying, guys, it's not about these outward signs. It's about the heart. It's about who you are inside. And so there's a lesson for us always is be, beware of trusting in external rituals. Beware of trusting in baptism. Okay, well, I was, I was baptized back in 83. I haven't done anything for the Lord since then, but I was baptized in 83. Okay, be careful of like, well, I'm going to take communion so I'm good, or I go to church somewhat frequently, or I read my Bible, or I pray, or I do all these things. This is what shows that, that I'm a believer. No, you're a believer because you've been placed in Christ. Christ has finished that work. Is it good to take communion and baptism and church attendance and read your Bible? Absolutely. But none of those things place you into the covenants. The new covenant is through Jesus Christ's blood. And once you place your faith in him, you are in. These other things help you grow and mature. And they're, they're signs of obedience. And they're wonderful things to do. But they don't save you. Verse 12. 
Paul continues, he says, at that time, at that time, in other words, before the Ephesian believers were born again, before they had come to salvation, at that time, you were without Christ. Just let that sink in a little bit. You might be really familiar with Ephesians and you might just say, okay, I've been through this before, but think about it for just a minute, what that means. You were without Christ. You were without Christ. And this is, this is what Jesus says. He says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will he give in exchange for his soul? What Jesus is saying there essentially is this. What does it matter if you have everything this world has to offer and you don't have me? You're going to lose. So think about that. Think about the person without Christ. And, and kind of, I like the imagery to use the imagery of scales. You guys have all seen scales. And so you put everything on the one side. You put, you put all of human knowledge and ability and pleasure and every, everything this world can offer, put on one side, and you put Christ on the other side, and Christ goes all the way to the bottom, and all those other things weigh nothing. And so it's important for us to remember, Christ is infinite, everything else is finite. Christ is eternal, everything else is temporal. To be without Christ is to have absolutely nothing. So to say to a person who says, well, I feel pretty good about my life and you know, I'm not kind of into this Jesus thing, but I think I'm okay. And to say, well, you know what? I'm glad you're happy for you. You know, you just do your thing. It's to lie to them. Because a person could possess everything, go everywhere, have every pleasure. And to be without Christ, they got to enjoy 70 years, 80 years and go to hell for eternity. It's not worth it. Jesus said this in John chapter six. Now, if you're not familiar with John chapter six, there was a lot of kind of Johnny come lately. There were a lot of people following after Jesus, but they just wanted to follow Jesus because Jesus was giving them free food. <laughs> so Jesus had fed the 5,000. The next day they chased down Jesus and they're kind of hanging out waiting for the next meal. So Jesus says, you know what? I don't want to have crowds for crowds sake. So I'm going to give them some hard sayings. Jesus began to say things like you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they were like, this guy's out there. This is too hard to understand. We just came for lunch. We're not into this. So they all take off. So Jesus turns to his disciples and he said this, do you also want to go away? Do you guys want to leave too? And this is what Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I want to challenge you as believers that when you're in a situation and you're tempted to go away from Christ, you're tempted to leave Christ for this thing or for that thing or for this job or for this situation or this circumstance, whatever it is, to ask yourself, why would I leave Christ? If Christ has all, why would I go away? Jesus said this in John 14, 6. Jesus said to, the, to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other game in town. There's no other plan B. He's the only one. And then I'll read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. says, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You know, this is, again, another verse for homework. Go home and pray through Ephesians 1, 3. And just try to ask, you know, ask the Lord, Lord, can you, can you kind of help show me what this means, that in Christ I have been given every spiritual blessing. <laughs> now, here's the deal. You've been given every spiritual blessing. You have this inheritance. You can't handle it all, all right now. You, you can't receive it all right now, but God is going to give you that. And then as a future, as eternity, a future, you know, kind of plays out, you're going to receive that more and more. These incredible blessings that we have in Christ. Now, also, 
We know from other scriptures, let me just give you a little bit more related to, you know, without Christ. To be without Christ is to be without light. To be without Christ is to be without peace. To be without Christ is to be without rest, without safety, without hope, without forgiveness, without mercy, without grace, without salvation. And so if you're here today and you have not yet received Christ, then what I would ask is what is it that you're unwilling to exchange for life with Christ? So if you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, please know that Jesus Christ welcomes you with with open arms, that he died for you upon the cross, that he wants to receive you to himself. But you have to ask yourself, if I'm not yet going to Christ, why won't I? What's holding me back? What is it? Because if Christ offers life, Light, peace, rest, safety, hope, forgiveness, mercy, grace, salvation, a way to the Father, eternal life, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. What on earth or in hell could be better than that? What's what's the exchange? You see, to be without Christ is to refuse Christ, and that's to choose hell. Now, now here's kind of a situation I want to talk about, because sometimes it gets pictured as heaven versus hell. And I've said that lots of times. But, you know, it's, it's really not heaven versus hell. It's Christ versus hell. That's really what. So, so if we just make kind of heaven this place and we convince ourselves in our minds, well, it's going to be really boring. You know, people are just going to be like wearing the same clothing. And, you know, they've just got harps. And I really, you know, never good with stringed instruments. You know, and that kind of stuff. That's our view. We're missing the point. It's kind of like if you're doing, choosing. Say, well, I don't know if I'm going to move to New York or to L.A., uh, but my wife is living in L.A., Well, hopefully you're moving to L.A., right? Because a person is there, and that's why you do it. So it's not simply heaven versus hell, one place or another. It's where is Christ? Where is my creator? Where is the one who died on the cross for me? Where is the one who loves me no matter what? Where is the one who has been incredibly faithful to me, will be faithful to me too? Wherever he is, that's where I want to go. So that's what makes heaven heaven. Because God is there. So please understand, it's not place versus place. It's not, you know, Fiji or Hawaii. No, no, it's Christ versus hell. It's person versus place. Now, continuing on in Ephesians 2.12, Paul says, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. And so they were not part of the nation of God. They were not part of the nation of Israel, that nation that God had chosen to work through. So they were aliens. They were not a part of that. It says, and strangers from the covenants of promise. They were not part of the, uh, Abraham's covenant. They were not a part of Moses' covenant. They were not a part of David's covenant. They were not a part of the new covenant before this happened. So they were missing out. And then Paul continues on and he says, having no hope. Think about that for just a minute. Having, having no hope. He doesn't say, well, you, you had some hope. You know, maybe, just maybe it was going to work out. He said you had no hope. Outside of Christ, there is no hope. They had nothing to look forward to, no reason for living, no promise to hold on to. And this is why that the unbeliever's motto is let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But you know what? That motto doesn't work out well in the end. Because death is not the end. And then it continues on, saying, having no hope and without God in the world. They were without relationship with the true and living God. 
They were not in relationship with him. And so this is tragic to live a life without the center of life, God. A life without God just doesn't make sense. A life without God is, is, is rudderless. It's moving from one pleasure or one thing to the next or one accomplishment to the next, but it never really satisfies. And that's why, you know, it's, it's legion. You see about these guys who win these Super Bowl trophies and they kind of go home afterwards. And once it settles in, they cry because they thought it was going to fulfill them. They thought this thing that they'd spent their whole life working for would, would, would finally make a difference in their life and it doesn't. And so that's what we have to understand that a life without God at the center won't make sense. God won't allow it to make sense. It just can't happen. So this is a situation that they were in. So the point that Paul is making is that the Ephesians and all Gentile unbelievers, they were in a bad way before they came to know the Lord. It was a dark, dark time. And then here it is, verse 13, but now. But now. So all of that darkness and here comes the light. It makes me think of, you know, the show that used to be on years ago, The Extreme Home Makeover. You know, they would take a house and, and in certain situations, there's just the house was unusable. So they just get rid of the whole thing and then build a whole new house. And then it was the old saying, move that bus. You know, they would move the bus and all of a sudden here was this new house, extreme home makeover. That's what God has done here. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The gap has been bridged. Yes, the gap has been bridged. And so it's one of those things you think about you and Christ. It's, it's like before salvation, it's like going to the Grand Canyon. And it doesn't, maybe some of us can jump a little further than others, but none of us are going to make it. That's how it was. But then you go to the Grand Canyon the next day and all of a sudden there's a bridge across it. How did this happen? And salvation on the other side, that's what's happened, is God has created that bridge through Jesus Christ. Now, please notice, the bridge is not good works. It doesn't say that. The bridge is not baptism. The bridge is not communion. The bridge is not church attendance. The bridge is not tithing, although some churches want to lead you to believe <laughs> that the bridge is tithing. The bridge is the blood of Christ. Notice, you have been brought near. How? What's the bridge? The blood of Christ. You know, sometimes people criticize Christianity and say, oh, it's, it's a bloody religion. You know, they, they want a bloodless religion. We'll, we'll go find it. There's plenty of those. But our faith is built upon the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is that bridge. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ and only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ can remedy the situation that the lost find themselves in. And that's actually incredibly good news. Because for you and I, as believers, sometimes... You know, we, we appreciated the bridge at the beginning and then we're a believer for a certain number of years and we're like, well, I think I should help with the bridge. <laughs> you know, I, I think I should kind of add to the bridge and maybe, maybe some ornamentation on the bridge and then the Lord will let us build for a little bit and then, you know, kind of gets out the ruler and smacks your hand like, no, this is my bridge. This is not anything that you participate in. You don't contribute to. You and I can build up, you know, rewards in heaven, treasures in heaven. Jesus talks about that and that's great. Doesn't do anything about the bridge. The bridge is all based on Christ. So only the blood of Christ can tra transform a person without Christ to one who is in Christ. So think about that. This is you. This is your story. This is not just a story of the Ephesians. This is a story for each and every person who is a believer in this room. And again, if you're not a believer in this room, then I would encourage you to place your faith in Christ and this can become your story. So you used to be without Christ and now you are in Christ. 
You were in him. You went from being an alien to a citizen. You went from being a stranger into a friend. You went from being a person with no hope to one who has the hope of eternal life. You went from being without God to becoming a child of God. You went to from being far off to being brought near. And nothing but the blood of Jesus can do all this. No one in this room added to this. <laughs> no one in this room did a part of this. Jesus did it all. And so what incomprehensible blessings flow out of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this brings us to our second section, and that's Christ our peace in verses 14 through 18. Verse 14, notice, for he himself is our peace. Whew, that's good news. We've got to remind ourselves because, uh, you know, if you've been keeping track with uh, gas prices, <laughs> you know, you know, the one day one of my daughters, you know, she, she filled up in 402. And then I went the very next day and it was, you know, 416. And then the next day it was 419. And then I went to fill up last night and it was 449. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is discouraging. Uh, but it doesn't say the economic system is our peace. Or proper legislation is our peace, or proper politicians are our peace, or good health is our peace. No, no, it doesn't say any of that. It says he himself is our peace. And that's good news because he doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So no matter what happens, if we seek him, we can have peace because he himself is our peace. If we say, no, I want to transfer my allegiance to this world system to how I'm feeling, to what's going on in my life, to my circumstances, then we're not going to have peace anymore. He himself has to be our peace. Not only does Jesus give peace, but he himself is our peace. And this means that he's the reason for our peace, that that peace was won through his finished sacrifice. Because of his finished sacrifice, we can have peace. It was prophesied of him in Isaiah 9, 6. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we must remember that there is no peace with God outside of Jesus Christ. If he himself is our peace, then a person who refuses Jesus Christ doesn't have peace. No matter how they might feel. They might feel fine, but they don't have peace with God. So there's no lasting peace also with fellow human beings outside of Jesus Christ. So right now, if you have disharmony in relationships, okay, and you've done everything on your side to be at peace with them and the people won't be at peace with you, then, then great, okay? But if, if right now you have disharmony in relationships, you, just ask, you need to check and see, are you finding your peace in God? Or are you finding and say, well, I just need everything to be right around me because that's me so often, you know, spiritually speaking, I, I often act like a toddler. You know, I just need everything to be nice around me so I can have peace. I'm depending on, on situations in life to give me peace when Jesus himself is our peace. Now, it keeps getting better and better here in verse 14. He himself is our peace who has made both one. And so that both one speaks of Jew and Gentile. So he's taking the Jews and the Gentiles, which basically is, is everybody on planet Earth in the, in the Jewish way of thinking, Jews and Gentiles. And notice what he's done. He has broken down the middle wall of separation. Now, what's interesting, this middle wall of separation was a literal barrier in the temple. It was in the court of the temple as a four and a half foot, uh, four and a half foot high wall. 
that divided the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women, being the Jewish women. And so spiritually speaking, Jesus has taken down that wall. He's broken down that wall of separation and brought everyone together. And we see this here in verse 15. He says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And so through Jesus's life and death, he has completely fulfilled the law. The ceremonial laws, the feasts, the sacrifices, the offerings, the laws of cleanliness and of purification have now been abolished. They're over Now, would you guys hold on to Ephesians for just a minute and then turn right a little bit to Hebrews. Let's look at Hebrews for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We'll look at verses 1 through 18. We'll move through it quickly. But here the writer to the Hebrews is going to talk about how Jesus fulfilled the law and that's why we don't sacrifice animals anymore. There's no need to. The law has been fulfilled. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1, says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have uh, ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins, but the... But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away our sins. So it's really important to understand. The reason why they had to keep offering these sacrifices over and over and over again is because they never take away sins. They only covered it. And so you offer a sacrifice, and then you sin. It's like, i got to offer another sacrifice, and offer another sacrifice, and offer another sacrifice. Verse 5, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you had no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. So this is prophesied about Jesus. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire. You had no pleasure in them, and when they are offered according to the law. And he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ, notice, once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Okay, so I want you to have this imagery in your mind. In the Old Covenant, as the priests were offering sacrifices, you never got to sit down. And the reason why you never got to sit down when you were on duty is because there was always another sacrifice to offer. And it's really important that you understand this imagery Okay, because Jesus is our ultimate high priest. We want to think about his posture here. It says, verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, what does he do? Sat down because the sacrifice is finished. There's no more offerings to be offered. And so he can sit down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Verse 14 is an incredibly important verse for you and I as believers. By that one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In other words, positionally we're perfect in him. But as long as we're here on earth, he's going to keep working on us, make, sanctifying us, making us more like Christ. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses uh, to us 
For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, to their minds I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. For there, for where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. All right, let's go back to Ephesians now as we continue on to 15 there. I wanted to touch on something else in this verse. Notice picking up where it says, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Okay, so through the fulfillment of the law, both the ceremonial law and the moral law and with the abolishment of the ceremonial law. Now, Jew and Gentile are in completely equal footing. This is really, really important. They're in one body, the body of Christ. There are some movements within the church that say, yeah, yeah, it's great that you believe in Christ, but you'd be a little bit better if you followed the Old Testament law. You'd be a little bit better, you know, if, if, you, if you honored the feasts, if you did this or this, and, and there's all kinds of stuff. May I just say that is not a New Testament idea? If, if you want to follow the feasts, great, okay? If, if you want to honor those things or you want to keep the Sabbath, that's between you and the Lord. That does not put you on a higher footing, okay? And I would encourage you on your own to read Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 28 through 28. Paul talks about how, you know, there's no longer, you know, slave nor free and Jew nor Greek, that we're all one in Christ. And then I would encourage you also, we don't have time to get to it, but 1 Corinthians 12 Verses 12 through 27, it talks about how we're all members of the body of Christ. And, and, and maybe, maybe you're a pinky toe in the body of Christ. And you're just like, well, I, I wish I were an eye. <laughs> you know, that's God's, you have a purpose. God's put you in the, in the body where he wants you to be. But please understand that if you're in Christ, you're in the body somewhere. And it's important for us to remind ourselves of that. All right, let's continue on to verse 16. It says that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Okay, so what is this telling us? That the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood equally for all. That the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood for the Jew. The Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood for the Gentile. It's not like, well, it was, it was kind of primarily for the Jews and, and not so much for the Gentiles. Or it was this or that. No, 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 no. The, the Lord Jesus shed his blood for any, for any who would come to him. And therefore, there is a complete reconciliation. And so that word reconciliation there, it's talking about a, an end of hostilities. That the hostilities are over and the people are brought back together. That's found at the cross. Reconciliation with God and reconciliation with fellow believers. And so it's important for us to understand this. Because as we're right with God, we can be right with other people. But Christians are often the worst. They want to be right with God, but they hate other Christians. You don't believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today? You ain't getting in. Right? We have all these, these kind of little mountains that want to die on, and we want to remind ourselves that, that we may disagree agreeably in certain areas. The fact of the matter is, as we are believers, we're part of one body. And if anyone leaves this place and they start punching themselves in the face, hopefully the rest of us will get a hold of them and, and help them to stop. But if we're all one body and we make it our mission to go after other Christians, whether online, whether in church, whether in school, whether in our own homes, that's equivalent of punching yourself in the face. For us as believers, we need to build each other up. Now, if we, f- we find other people in error, we can, we can seek to set them right in an agreeable way, in a godly way, but we should not go after other Christians in this way. 
Now, let's move on to verse 17 now. It says, And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. I love this. So Lord Jesus Christ, it's, it's, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of peace. He came and preached peace. And it's interesting, people are, you know, they always say, you know, visualize world peace, or I'm praying for world peace, or every beauty contestant, right? Yeah, I just wish there were world peace. The fact of the matter is, that's a great thing to wish for, but it's only going to come through the Prince of Peace. And so if you say, I think peace is a great thing, I want peace in my household, submit to the Prince of Peace. He said, I want peace at my school and I want peace in my nation. Then pray for peace, but please realize it only comes through submission to Christ. You can be an outpost of peace as you submit to him. And so it was for the Gentiles, those who are far off, and it was for the Jews, those who are near. And I love Jesus prophesied about this, how he was going to bring the two together in one. In John 10, verse 16, Jesus said this, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, and them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. He was prophesying about reaching the Gentiles, that he was going to bring the Gentiles in. Verse 18 for through him, that's through Jesus, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. That's, this is super exciting here. First of all, I want you to notice the Trinity's involved, right? For by him, that's by Jesus, right? Um, we have access by one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, to the Father, that's God the Father. So we have God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father. So please understand that when you come into relationship with God, you come into relationship with the Trinity, Right? You, please don't fall into that error of like, well, I'm cool with Jesus, but God the Father, oh, he's kind of out to get me. Or, you know what, I, I don't really know about this Holy Spirit thing. No, no. The triune God has relationship with you. The triune God has, God the Father sent his son to die on the cross and the Holy Spirit drew you to his son. It, it, you can't get away from the Trinity uh, because they are omnipresent. And, and so, but, but I love this. I, I love this picture here of access. There are so many places in this world we're not allowed. So many places where there's, you know, you got to have a key card to get in here, or no admittance or backstage pass or all these kind of things. And, and, and we're so limited, but here in, in, through Jesus Christ, we have access to the father. That's a wonderful thing that you and I at any place on planet earth can come before the father and pray to him. The door has been opened. It's a wonderful, incredible blessings that we see here. Let's move on now to our final section. That's one building in verses 19 through 22. Verse 19 says, Now, therefore, you who are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, I, I don't know exactly what the theology of the, the church in Ephesus was, how much they understood but what I imagine happened is, is Paul sent this letter to them and as it's being read by the leaders of the church and they hear this, surely some of them got up and, you know, you know, did the, the gritty or something. You know, they did a little dance as they thought about this because how exciting it would be to think about you're like this, this person, you're a part of Rome, but you're not a part of what the true and living God is doing. And all of a sudden, Paul tells you in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, guys, you have full rights and privileges in the household of God. Full rights and privileges in the household of God. And so you understand this. You know, maybe as you were growing up, you knew the difference between like what you had access to in your parents' house and what you had access to in a stranger's house. Okay, now if, if you broke into strangers' houses, we need to talk about that afterwards and repent to that. But 
if you were a person, you know, when you went over to a stranger's house, it was different, right? Maybe your friend's parents' house and, and it's kind of, you're like real limited. But when you go to your own house, you have access. What, what Paul is telling us is that when you become a believer, you have full access in the Father's house. Okay, that when you get to heaven and, and you're there, you're not going to be like, well, I wonder if I can open that door. Open that door. <laughs> go in. Look around. This is what God has given to us. And this is what we can enjoy now. Verse 20 says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so the New Testament apostles and prophets are the ones who wrote the word of God. And who is the, the cornerstone they wrote about? Well, of course, Jesus Christ. He's the foundation stone. 1 Corinthians 3.11, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which has laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. I want to read you what one author had to say about cornerstones. He said, the cornerstone was the major structural part of ancient buildings. It had to be strong enough to support what was built on it. And it had to be precisely laid because every other part of the structure was oriented to it. The cornerstone was the support the, the orienter and the unifier of the entire building. That is what Jesus Christ is to God's kingdom, God's family, and God's building. Okay, now, now here's what happens though. You and I have spent a life building without a permit. <laughs> you and I have spent a life, just a little bit of this, and I'll put this thing here. And so Jesus Christ comes into our life and then it's, it's an earth shaking. But what's happened is though we're born again, those old building that we've been doing without a permit, the, the Lord wants to bring it all up to code. And as he wants to bring it up to code, it is painful. It's harsh. And there's a lot of deconstruction that has to happen. And, and, and kind of this little shanty that we've been building, he's wanting to make it into a mansion. And that's going to take some time. And it's going to take some work. But it's going to be beautiful what he's doing. But we need to give him free access. Because as we fight him on that, as we kind of keep this unpermitted shanty, then he says, you know, I can't work in your life the way I want to. But if we say, Lord, all right, here's the hammer. <laughs> Do your will. It's going to be painful, but it's going to be great. Verse 21 says, in whom, that's Jesus, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Okay. And so, so it's, you know, it's, it's in Jesus, right? That, so Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The whole building is fitted around him and then it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, I love this imagery. Kind of Paul's mixing his metaphors a little bit because buildings don't necessarily grow, right? I mean, they're built and then they remain. But the, the, the household of the Lord, the body of Christ is a growing building. It's an organic building. It's continuing on. And so this is a wonderful thing to think about. The body of Christ is expanding. Please, please, please don't become discouraged, you know, by, by media and by doomsayers and like, well, you know what? There's about seven Christians left on planet Earth, you know, and it's we, we probably should. You guys should probably just give up. It's over. You've lost. They've been trying to bury the church for 2000 years. Haven't been successful yet. Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So please understand that this building, this body of Christ, this temple of Christ is growing. It's continuing. People continue to be saved. Verse 22, our final verse, says, In whom also you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. 
I, I love that. The, the fact of the matter is that we're a part of this building. You know, sometimes you might walk on a, you know, like a, a college campus and there's a brick or there's a building named after somebody, you know, and they, they spent, you know, probably $5,000 for that brick as a donation to the school. But the Lord says, you are that brick, right? You're a part of this building. You are a part of this thing. And then this word dwelling place is very important, or this phrase dwelling place, because it means a permanent dwelling, okay? Permanent dwelling. It doesn't mean, you know, maybe you're going to make it and maybe you won't. No, a permanent dwelling place of the Spirit, a permanent home. This speaks of the body of Christ as a whole. The body of Christ is the permanent dwelling place of Christ and that the Lord God permanently dwells with his people. So beautiful, incredible truths that we've seen here in this section of Scripture. And I just want to kind of close by by giving you an exhortation, giving me an exhortation to a little self-assessment. You know, to really to take some time to think about, is there something that's dividing me between me and God as a believer? As a believer, is there something in my life that I'm holding on to? Is it a dream? Is it an expectation? Is it unforgiveness? Is it, is it bitterness? Whatever it is that's keeping me divided from him relationally and then just letting that go. Realize whatever that sin is that you're holding on to, that I'm holding on to, Christ already died for that. Please understand that, that he wants something better for you. And then also to look around and saying, is there something that's dividing you and your fellow human beings? You know, is there, is there something that you're unwilling to forgive or, or whatever it is that's causing? And then to realize you can let that go, that, that the Lord will take that thing away and help you enjoy the riches that you have in him.